pre-Christmas messages. <laughs> Don't be cheering yet. <laughs> yeah, I got to hear the rest of the story. You know, <laughs> and at the same time, I thought, or do I just go on into Second Thessalonians chapter one and this is a prayer about it? And I kind of looked over some notes and was kind of thumbing and praying, and then I I read Second Thessalonians chapter one, and I just thought, you know. For me, and I get in the Christmas spirit usually about a week or two before Christmas. There are things that God uses to kind of put me there. Part of it is as we begin to do our Christmas shopping, we look at our list, we check it t- twice, and it doesn't matter if you're naughty or nice. If you're on our list, you're probably getting something. If you're not, I apologize again for that. But, uh, you know, I just kind of started getting a few things, and then... You know, last night, It's a Wonderful Life was on USA, and I watched a little bit of that. That is, I love that movie. I love A Christmas Carol, the one with George C. Scott as Ebenezer Scrooge. And so there's a few things that happen. And then again, too, you know, I have to tell you, after reading the section, I just felt like the Lord wanted me to, to just go into Second Thessalonians chapter 1. So next week, we'll take a look at a, a pre-Christmas message. And then, of course, on Christmas Eve, we will do the Christmas story. So, so all that to say is we are in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. I like it, too, just because of the continuity. It really is a continuation of First. Thessalonians, a lot of the same things that have been mentioned in the previous five chapters of First Thess are continued here. Um, I, I like this because there's a follow-up. And sometimes, you know, when it comes to the things that are going on in a person's life, you find out there's a need, you realize there should be, a, you know, some prayer or things go on. or And again, too, I suppose for anybody that has been responsible for a body of believers, after a period of time, you have a concern. How are they doing spiritually? And I like Second Thessalonians because, again, too, it picks up where the first epistle left off. But, again, too, there's some updates as to how they're doing as a church. So chapter 1, it's a short chapter, too, which is nice. I like that. Um, it'll allow me to get through it in a, and hopefully in the next, well, never mind, I remember chapter 5, um, expeditious way. But let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your word. I'm grateful, Lord, for my brothers and sisters that ventured out in the, the snowy, icy, cold weather, Lord, to be here and to, to worship you and to fellowship in you, Lord, and to study your word. And Lord, we just do pray for uh, the rest of our fellowship that will be venturing out for second service and those that will be going Christmas caroling later on this afternoon. We pray, Lord, for your traveling mercies, for safe travels, for your angels just working overtime to protect your people, Lord, to protect people that are driving today. But Lord, bless this time as we study your word, and it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. You know, one other option, just to remind you, if the weather is bad and I haven't canceled service, but you feel like you can't or it's unsafe for you to drive, you can watch online. So... Just a reminder that this is a good time of the year that if it's like this, hopefully people from our fellowship are, are tuning in and watching as well. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 begins with Paul and his introduction. And those that are with him, he says, Paul and Silvanus, 
Silvanus is actually the Latin equivalent of Silas. We've seen Silas in the book of Acts. I believe it's in chapter 16, 17, 18, and 19 that he is mentioned. He is accompanying Paul, I believe, from his second missionary journey into the third missionary journey. Somewhat significant because, again, too, there comes a point where there's a parting of ways between Paul and Barnabas. And Silvanus seems to be, or I want, I'm just going to call him Silas. Silas seems to be the guy that fills that role, uh, you know, that Paul leans to and that they work together. And so Paul is writing the second epistle with Silas and it says, And Timothy, unto the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're bound to thank God always for you. I love that, the way that sounds. In the new, I mean, in the NIV it says, we ought always to thank God for you. And when you see how God is working in a person's life, or you get report that they're continuing on with God, you know, for, for a believer, I mean, and a, a pastor too, and a church planter like the Apostle Paul, I mean, can't help but thank God for the work that God is doing in someone else's life. And, and again, too, this is someone that, uh, this is a group of believers that Paul has invested his life in. And he prays for them regularly. And we saw that in the previous epistle. And we're going to see it mentioned again here in chapter 1. Because he says, we're bound to, to, to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, old King James, as it is fit or fitting because that your faith grows exceedingly and the charity or the love of every one of you all toward each other abounds or aboundeth. He's thanking God because it's only fitting to give glory to the one who's responsible for the work in the church's life. I think a lot of times too, there's too much emphasis on the things that man can do or the, man, the things that man should be doing when really the more we rely upon God or we rely upon the working of His Holy Spirit, then He's the one that gets credit or glory for it. Again, because if it's something that I'm doing or I think that I'm doing, then I'm, there's a, a temptation to take the glory away from God and to say, well, it's what we've done. It's the methods that we've employed. And actually, there are churches that have done that. You know, they've forsaken the truths of God's Word. They've forsaken a reliance or dependent upon, dependence upon God. They want to see the church grow, but they're using methods that, again, too, in which they're taking credit for. And Paul always recognizes that every work that is done is a work that, is, that God has done. And he says, we're giving thanks for you guys. Again, I'm, I'm always grateful when I see or hear of someone who's just continued over the years in their walk with God. As I go to pastor's conferences, and I, I, for me, it's important for me as a pastor to get away a couple times a year just to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus, be able to worship, be able to open up God's Word, to be able to just simply sit and receive without thinking, okay, you know, which song is the last song in the worship set? Second service, see, first service, you know, it's great because Eric closes and opens in prayer, and that that really helps me significantly. But second service, you know, I'm the one that opens and closes in prayer. So even as I'm worshiping, that thought is in the back of my mind. You know, uh, is this the last song? Is that the last song? I have a, a pal that helps me out. And I look at her and I make eye contact with Mackenzie 
when she's up here. And she will give me the kind of little, it's just real subtle. Maybe you pick up on it, maybe you don't, but she'll just, she'll look at me and her little eyebrow will go up and she'll go, yep, this is the last song. Or she'll go like this, you don't know, no, it's not. It's just one more song, you know, after this one. So it helps me, I'm, you know, I'm, I, during service, I have to think about these things. You might not think about these things. But it's nice for me as a pastor to get away to the conferences. And again, too, at the conferences, I connect with pastors. And it's always a blessing for me to hear and to see how they're continuing in their walk and in the ministry that God has committed to them. Just year in and year out. And the Apostle Paul is glad over the reports that he is hearing over the church at Thessalonica that they're continuing in their faith. And, it, and the thing I'm just going gonna, gonna to tip my cards to you right now, quick and early, just to bring to your attention that there are, there's this thing, this theme that is woven, especially through the first chapter, and it has to do with faith. Your faith. He says, I'm thanking God because of your faith that it grows exceedingly. But the other thing is the Apostle Paul is going to mention faith two more times in this chapter. And every time he mentions it, he couples it with something. He says that your faith grows exceedingly and the charity and the love of everyone towards you all abound. It's abounding. Now, again, too, this might seem pretty simple, but I always like to define what faith is. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews tells us what faith is. That faith is the substance, this is Hebrews 11 verse 1, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and then he's going to go on and give examples of faith. The whole chapter, many times referred to as the hall of fame of faith, he's going to describe Old Testament saints who put their trust in God or in the promises of God that God would fulfill the things that he said. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Wrapped up with a person's faith is the hope that God is going to accomplish the things that he says he's going to do. It's a hope that, again, too, is an unrealized hope. We can't always see it, but we know that it is going to happen because, again, God has been faithful in the past to fulfill his promises in our lives. When you come into a relationship with Jesus, that living relationship, that relationship where God is working and speaking in your heart is something that becomes evident to us. And all of a sudden, I know for new believers, there's an excitement there. I know for me, I had that. I mean, it was just an excitement that for, for a good year, year and a half, it's just, I can't believe that Jesus has saved me. I can't believe that I can read God's Word. I can't believe the power of God working in a, in a believer's life. And, and at times, too, I couldn't believe the trials and persecutions that would come as a result of being a believer. And the thing that the Apostle Paul says about their faith is that it's growing. It's not stagnant, stagna, stagnated. That's not probably not even a word. I just made that up. It's not stagnant. I should probably phrase it that way. If my wife was here, she would look at me and she would guide me along too with her head nods or shaking of her head. Pray for her. She's in Wichita. She was speaking at a women's brunch yesterday and I text her. I said, you know, it's snowing pretty bad here. You might get stuck there. So check the status before you go to the airport. But uh, 
Keep her in prayers. She'll be traveling back today. But he's talking about a faith that hasn't stagnated or that's not stagnant. And I think sometimes, too, that happens for people. You know, you get to that point where either you've been hurt or discouraged or you get to that point maybe in your pride you think, okay, I've read the Bible and I've gone to church and I've seen what people are like. And uh, again, too, you know, there's maybe some, I know, again, too, I think anybody that's been a believer for any period of time, I don't know at what point it happens, but there's a, you know, many times when a person comes into a relationship with God, it's, it's described, I mentioned that first year and a half, I couldn't believe, and many times it's described as that honeymoon period. I mean, just, you know, again, too, like a, a newly wedded couple, there is an excitement. And for a person that's received Christ and has been born again and experiences God in their lives, there is an excitement. But many times, like in a marriage, all of a sudden there comes a point where, okay, you know, now some of that excitement is worn off and it's more of the day-to-day living. And, and it doesn't mean you love your spouse any less, but it just means that there is more of a reality. You can, you can only maintain that excitement, I think, in the flesh for only so long in a marriage. And I think, too, in the Lord... Again, too, there are times where it doesn't mean that I love the Lord any less, but I don't have that constant excitement, that sense of awe. I'm more of like, yeah, you know, solid. This foundation has been laid in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is in my life. I'm dedicated to His Word and to the things of God, and I'm unmovable in those things. But it doesn't mean I walk around all the time, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Again, too, you know, as a new believer, I was a lot like that. But our faith should never get to that place where it either plateaus or stagnates or where we're losing ground. But it is something that continually grows. Now, I already mentioned the passage in Hebrews chapter 11, but there's another passage of God's Word. Because again, too, if we're talking about our faith growing, how does a person... How does their faith grow? How does a person's faith grow? You might think it's by the exercise of our faith, and I think and that's one way of, that it grows, but I, I think sometimes we mistake what faith is or what it accomplishes, and sometimes we think that faith is just simply wildly and blindly trusting God in whatever crazy thing that maybe we come up with. It's like, okay, now the Lord just wants me to step out and trust. Well, you know, if it is the Lord, then great, you know, trust Him. But I think sometimes we come up with the, you know, things that we think are God or maybe even things that we want for ourselves and we say it's God and we step out and we fall flat on our faces. And, you know, faith is, is, is more, Again, to what I see here in our passage, there are three things that come as a result of a person's faith that grows. And the first one that is mentioned is that love grows as well. Your faith grows, and actually I wanted to say one more passage about faith. How do you grow in your faith? Well, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I've known too many Christians that, again, too, the emphasis on God's Word in a church that maybe they're attending isn't there, and they think that faith 
and everything that is wrapped up with faith is a working of the Spirit, and it's more about excitement, and it's more about feel, and it's more about, you know, whipping it up kind of a thing, and yearning it for an emotional experience. And, and again, too, you know, or even to seeing things in a miraculous sense, if that was the case, the children of Israel who were delivered from Egypt would have been the most faithful people any generation had ever seen because they saw God work in the miraculous way. They saw God work through His Holy Spirit leading them. They saw God work also to rebuking them and warning them at times because, again, ground opening up, people getting swallowed up, fiery serpents going through the camp, biting people, people dying. I mean, God was at work in a way that they could sense. And yet every time there came a trial, their faith was lacking because they weren't trusting in the Word of God, the commandments of God, obeying them. And the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Why does our faith grow because of that? Because God's Word is alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It separates between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. As I read God's Word, as I, in a spiritual sense, digest it, as I apply it and see God working in the way that He promises in His Word, my faith is strengthened and my confidence in God's Word is strengthened, my knowledge of God's Word, but also, too, the experiences that come with that are in line with the things that God's Word says. So here's the thing. And again, you know, he mentions your faith is growing, and he says, and the love of everyone towards each other aboundeth. The word for abound there in the Greek is only used a handful of times, I think six, eight times, and, and the thing is, I'd read in one of the commentaries that it's this idea of a, a, a flood almost, that it overflows its boundary. I mean, yes, there's a love that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, but the type of love that the Apostle Paul is talking here is a love that goes beyond whatever boundaries would be expected. Again, too, in a body in which a people or a group of believers are growing in their faith, it's not evidenced in maybe the crazy things that people either say or do or attribute to the working of the Spirit. But it's evidenced in something that's much more tangible and necessary in a church, is that we love one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it talks about all these different things that a person might have either the ability to do or, again, to uh, ways in which God might work miraculous in a person's life. And again, we could ooh and ah over that as God is working in our lives or through these feelings, but the bottom line is, is without love, they profit nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love or charity, I become as a sounding brass or as a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. I love, you know, again, too, how that applies to what we're looking at today. You know, even if I had the kind of faith that Jesus said, that could pluck up a tree or that could remove a mountain, if there's no love, what good is that? And I think sometimes we, 
we get caught up in our immaturity. We get caught up in the, the feeling or the experience or the supernatural and our faith doesn't translate into something more tangible and it's just love. I mean, do you love your brothers and sisters? As you get to know them, you begin to see maybe some of their faults or shortcomings or they might grade on you or I might grade on you or you might grade on them. I mean, do we allow those things to divide us or do we, in a sense, love in a way in which we are trusting God and our faith is being exercised? In Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 1 that it is impossible, but that offenses will come. I mean, people are going to offend and hurt each other, but he's also talking in terms of a person's faith. And he says that he goes on to say in verse 2 of Luke 17, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into a sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the thing I find interesting is, is what the apostles then say next to the Lord. Oh, Lord, that's kind of hard. I mean, I, if somebody offends me and he asks me to forgive him, I mean, I think so, a lot of times we have difficulty just forgiving a person one time because we want to dwell on that or we want to tell them what they've done or how they've hurt us. And, and again, too, we want to accuse them. You, know, just, you did this. This was deliberate. I mean, you know, and they try, no, I didn't really mean it. No, no, I know you did. And then you just get into this thing and we, we have such difficulty forgiving people when they've, ask for the first time for forgiveness and yet Jesus says forgive them but Jesus goes on and gives the example if it happens seven times in a day and seven times they come back and they say please forgive me and they're sincere about it then Jesus says you have to forgive them and here's the thing that the apostles recognize in order to do that if Jesus is telling me to do that then it's going to require faith and it says there in verse 5, the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Yeah, I never really looked at it that way, the, the coupling or the importance of having faith in the, uh, in the function of being able to forgive others or even love others. But really, it's, it's a vital component because, again, what am I doing? I'm trusting God. I'm trusting God with, again, too, if they've done something wrong to me, and they've asked me for forgiveness, and I say, you know, okay, I, I forgive you. And I mean genuinely forgive. I don't mean just, okay, I know I'm supposed to forgive, so I'll say I forgive you. But in my heart, I'm kind of harboring something. No, I mean, uh, forgiveness then takes you back into that relationship, what it was like before the person committed the offense. I mean, that's what Jesus does for us on the cross. His blood washes us clean and God puts us in a state where he looks at us before man's fall as righteous. Are we righteous? Not, no, not in our own righteousness, but we are righteous in Christ. It's an imputed righteousness. So when we forgive somebody, it should take us back to that place before the offense was committed. And the apostles say they recognize I have to trust the Lord with that. 
I have to exercise my faith. Lord, I have to trust that again too, you're going to, if there is a need for correction or for judgment, you're going to do that, but I'm going to, you're calling me to forgive, so I'm going to forgive. And so, Lord, I'm trusting you with that. It's a hard thing, and I think it's a, a difficult thing that many Christians never learn to do, or they never learn to exercise their faith to that extent, extent to where it is manifested either in love or forgiveness towards others. See, God sees us, and He knows our weaknesses, our shortcomings, and yet He still loves you, doesn't He? I mean, again, too, Romans chapter 5 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even before we were at that place where we're seeking God and even had a heart towards God, we were in rebellion. We were doing our own thing. We were thumbing our noses at God. And yet God loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us and to forgive our sins. For us, it should translate, our faith as it grows should translate into a love for one another. And that really, again, too, that's a healthy body. That's a healthy church where the body is edifying itself in love. The next verse in, back in our passage in verse 4 where Paul goes on to say, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches. And actually, I encourage you, too, to, to read the rest of Luke chapter 17. Actually, I'm going to read it. I know I shouldn't do this. Once I've passed a point, I shouldn't go back, but I'm going to. I'm going to break my own rules. Verse 6, and again, too, back in Luke chapter 17, the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. Jesus says, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you should say to the sycamore tree, be plucked up by the root and be planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come in from the field, go and sit down to meet or to eat. And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird yourself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterwards thou shalt eat and drink. So again, too, he's talking about what faith looks like. He says, if you have the faith, you could say to a sycamore tree, you know, be plucked up and cast in the sea. But then he, he gives this example of a person that has a servant. We don't live in a day and age where we have servants. But he basically says, if you're the one that was the master and you're the one that had a servant and that servant had been working all day hard in the field and then he comes in, is the master going to say to the servant, hey, sit down, let me feed you? No, the master's going to say, even though you've worked hard all day out in the field, you need to feed me first. And after you're done taking care of me or serving me, then you can sit down and have your own meal. And he says in verse 9, does the master thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I don't think so. And again, how this relates to faith, how this relates to our relationship with God. Jesus says, so likewise, when you shall have done all the things which are commanded you, say we're unprofitable servants, for we have done that which was our duty to do. So many times we look at the things we're doing and we're working so hard. We're out in the fields working hard all day, Lord. And we come in and, and then we're serving you and we want some props for it. We want to be thanked for it. We want some recognition for it. And you know what? That's just the minimum. You're supposed to do that because we are servants to the master. 
We are servants to the King. We are the servants to the Creator of all the universe. We're servants to God Almighty. We're servants to Jesus who went to the cross and suffered for us. And when we do just the bare minimum, the commands of God, then again, too, don't think that we are owed anything. Our faith is translated when we do more than or even to obey what God's Word says, but go, go even further than that. So again, to now picking up in verse 4, he says, So that we ourselves glory in the churches of God. Now, the second coupling of faith, and he says, For your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Which is, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer. Another way in which our faith is demonstrated is the patience that we have while we are going through persecutions and tribulations or trials. We don't, again too, we don't fret, we don't... You know, I think sometimes, too, the trials are ordained by God. They're either coming because, again, we're following the Lord Jesus Christ. And the consequences of the result of that is that people will treat you differently. And people may persecute you. And people may say bad things about you. And people may, again, too, you might be denied promotions. You might not get invited to the things. Again, too, people may even, too, even if they're not ignoring you, they might proactively try to do things to hurt you and to say things about you. But the thing that the Apostle Paul commends them for is the patience that they have as they're going through these things and that it's faith for your patience and faith. And again, in my faith, I'm trusting that God word is true that as it says in the book of Romans but also too in the law that vengeance is mine says the Lord that if someone is either persecuting or wronging me I don't have to try to take vengeance myself that God is the one that ultimately intervenes and if God doesn't judge a person in this life he will in the next but I think sometimes too how we endure the trials or the persecutions at times can also to be a very powerful witness to drawing a non-believer to Jesus Christ. I know for me, and again too, I was an observer. Before I accepted Jesus as my Savior, my boss was that guy that was the outspoken believer in our unit in the Marine Corps. And he'd share the gospel with everybody. It didn't matter their rank or position in the Marine Corps. It didn't matter that they were over him or it didn't matter that they were under him. He loved everyone the same. And he had a heart for the lost. He wanted to see the lost saved. He had an eternal perspective. He realized, and again too, the Bible says that the sufferings of this present life aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us in Christ Jesus. So again too, no matter what happens in this world... You know, any suffering that we might go through, any way in which we're affected. I mean, in biblical times, Christians were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were put to death. I mean, I think sometimes we need a better perspective of even sometimes the trials or persecutions that we go through as a result of believing in Jesus Christ. Oh, we, I got denied a promotion because I was a believer. Well, you know, okay. But I remember my boss. He was that guy. 
And I also remembered that because of it, it was like having a big target on him, big target on his back. He was constantly the object of my unit's ridicule and even persecution. Our commanding officer actually tried to have him shipped out to another unit because he didn't like the fact that Sam was such an outspoken believer and one time presented the gospel to our commanding officer with hopes that he might respond and our officer was offended by it he was angered by it he was just like how dare you and even though you know my the guy that shared the gospel with me his name was Sam even though he was a staff sergeant, which you're starting to get up there in the rank structure, he'd been in for a while. Also, too, he had been in Marine Corps reconnaissance, which, again, too, there's a recognition. Only the best can be in Marine Corps reconnaissance. That's the Marine Corps' equivalent of the Navy SEALs. And even though, you know, you could have looked at his accomplishments in the Marine Corps and maybe put him on somewhat of a pedestal, he was willing to forsake all those things because he just wanted people to know Jesus Christ. And he shared the gospel with everybody in any opportunity that he could. And as a result, he was persecuted for it. They tried to ship him out. They tried to do all these different things. But the thing I saw in him, which was a great example for me as a new believer, was just his patience and his faith during the trials and during the persecutions. Are you able to trust God even in the midst of those things that happen? says that it's a, a manifest token, verse 5, it's a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which also you suffer. In the NIV it says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Sometimes the fact that you are being persecuted is the evidence that your faith is actually being seen and uh, witnessed and testified of in the world. And instead of again to being bummed out that we're persecuted or we're going through tribulations, we should be rejoicing. Jesus said the same thing to the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. That you're supposed to rejoice because that's the same way that the Old Testament prophets were treated and dealt with by God's people who supposedly were believers or at least they had a relationship with God. They had the commandments of God, but anytime the prophets would rise up and speak on behalf of God or call the nation to repentance, they would become persecuted as a result. And God says, you're in good company if you're being persecuted. We should recognize that. He says in verse 6, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation. Actually, I should say one more thing about, again, rejoicing. You know, that, it, uh, that, that again, you're counted worthy. Remember when Peter and John in the book of Acts healed the guy at the, at the gate that was lame from birth? And as a result, um, they're beaten and they're told not to preach in the name of Jesus by the Jewish council. And when they leave the Jewish council, as a result of the beating and the persecution that they went through, it says that they rejoiced in that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And we should rejoice. We should be glad that people see again to Jesus in us or the faith that we have in God. Verse 6, again to kind of continuing off of this, 
you know, not only should we rejoice when we're going through trials and tribulations, but the other thing is we need to trust God that God is going to deal with those that are persecuting you or persecuting me. In the book of Revelation, I think it's around the breaking of the fifth seal, there are a group of people that have been martyred for their faith standing around the throne asking God, how long before you judge? And white robes are given to them and they're told to wait until their brothers, the fullness of their brothers that would suffer or be martyred for their faith come into the kingdom. But God is righteous. You know, God will accomplish His righteous judgment upon those that persecute His people. The Bible says that whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. And in verse 6 it says, Seeing it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. And when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, and now we're talking about when Jesus returns. Verse 8 it says, In flaming fire. I read this, I thought, okay. This is just before Christmas, and I'm reading these kinds of things. The judgment of God is coming. But and again, this isn't for you. This is for those that persecute you or persecute God's people. At His coming, there is going to be a judgment or a vengeance that comes along with that. See, before the judgment God, of God comes, the grace and the mercy is presented. But when people's hearts are so hardened that they don't want to respond to the to the grace of God, then the judgment will come. And it says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Verse 10, When He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. The last coupling of faith in our chapter, it says, and the work of faith with power. We've seen previously how faith works with love. We've seen how faith works in patience going through trials and tribulations. It's funny because I think there's more of an emphasis of faith and its manifestation in power in the church today because that's, again, too, to me, the fact that he brings this up the very last, again, I'm thinking maybe it's not quite as important as the other two are first. But again, the power isn't our power, it's God's power working through us. And again, too, the purpose of the power isn't to see how high you can jump or how, what, how many pews you can leap over or, again, to how, you know, rabid a frenzy that a church can work itself up just because they feel like they're experiencing the power of God in doing that. But the power is to accomplish ministry. Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1 that they are to wait in Jerusalem till they are baptized or till they receive the promise of the Holy Spirit and then they are endued with power. And when they, again too, the church is birthed and the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place in Acts chapter 2, 
Then they began to testify and to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Another favorite passage of mine is found in Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus read this at the beginning of his public ministry. And for some reason, I'd never really noticed this, but the connection between the power of God's Spirit resting upon a person in faith and Jesus, out of the book of Isaiah, is quoting this, this particular passage. He doesn't read the whole passage. But the thing it says is, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. And then it tells why the Spirit is upon, and what He is anointed to do to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all, to, all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. That he might be glorified. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to accomplish these works of ministry. Again, you'd get the sense from either watching Christian television or visiting churches that the Spirit of God is upon you so that you can have a, a you know, blow on people so they fall over, or a tongue fest. I like what Paul says, and I think it's in 1 Corinthians where he talks about the exercise of the gift of tongues. Because you would think from the things that you see on TV or in the churches that tongues is the only manifestation of the Spirit. There are some churches that actually teach that again, to in order to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. And really that is not true. It's contrary to what the Word of God says. And as a result, there have been churches that again swing the opposite end of the pendulum and say, well, the working of the Spirit must no longer be for today. It must have been just for the early church because of all the weird and abusive things that we see in the church that are attributed to the power of God's Spirit upon them. And really, the manifestation and the power is to accomplish ministry. It's to preach and to bind up the brokenhearted and to preach liberty to the captives and all the different things that go along with that. And Paul says in verse 11 of our chapter that we pray for you that God would count you worthy of this calling to fulfill His good pleasure in goodness and the work of faith with power. That there is evidence of your faith through the power of His Spirit resting upon you and just serving the Lord. Read the book of Acts. Great, great way in which we see how the power of God as our faith is trusting in the Lord and in His Word is manifested through the church. And it says, and again, the, the, the goal is the same. You know, at the end of the section there in Isaiah chapter 61, it says that the Lord might be glorified. The planting of the Lord that He might be glorified. Again, too, so many times... We want the manifestation of the power of God's Spirit. So people look at us and say, oh, wow, what power that person has. We got to go to Him for prayer. We got to go for Him to prophesy over us. And these guys, these charlatans, have built ministries upon that whole concept. I love in the book of James where it talks, if there are any that are sick among you, let them call for the 
elders of the church. I had heard a, a Calvary pastor one time point out, it was just maybe his own conclusion or opinion. It doesn't say, let him call for someone who specifically has the gift of healing. Or if someone's sick, let him go to a healing service, 7 p.m. on a Friday night at this particular auditorium. No, it says, go to the church, ask the elders of the church to pray for you, and that the, if you've committed sins, then they'll be forgiven, but that the prayer faith might heal the sick. And again, to this particular pastor said, he says, elders. He doesn't say go to the pastor. He says, the leaders, the elders of the church. And his opinion was that, again, too, you couldn't particularly point at one particular person that could be credited with the healing. That it was a group of men or even a group of people in the church that have laid hands on that particular person and if they had been healed physically that again too they couldn't say well I know it was this person because his hand was really warm on my head or my shoulder or whatever again too we should give glory for any manifestation of his power in our lives it should be that Jesus is glorified that the verse 12 that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and love, patience and faith, and faith with power. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. And even as the disciples prayed, Lord, increase our faith. I pray that for us that we would never be at a place where our faith is stagnating, but, Lord, that we are growing in our faith and in our love for each other and for you. Lord, that our faith, as it is exercised with regards to trials and tribulations, Lord, that you would allow those trials and tribulations to work out the patience in our lives that you're wanting to work. And, Lord, we do pray for that power but a power, Lord, in which we are accomplishing the things that you call us to. That each one of us are functioning in the gifts, Lord, that you have given us so that the body of Christ might be edified and so that the loss might be reached. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters. I do know, Lord, that there is a love that continues to grow in this church, and I pray, God, that you'd continue to do that work. Please bless them, and it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that I pray. Amen.